We're going to welcome uh, two unrelated but um, comfortably now related speakers, John Copley, a marine biologist, first person in fact to dive more than five kilometres in the ocean, an award-winning educator of science, Casper Henderson, writer of award-winning book, book of Belly Imagined Beings, and soon, currently, writing A New Map of Wonders. John Copley and Casper Henderson. Are you cold? <laughs> Diving. <laughs> so, um, gents, we're here to talk about life. And um, I think what we're going to do is each of you in turn just give us a brief presentation and then we're going to have a conversation. Is that reasonable? Have you got a preference of order? Alphabetical. <laughs> John. Okay. Thank you. Did you want to go to the lectern or stay no, here? No, here it's fine. Okay. First slide? Yes, please. Yeah. And we're away. Okay. So the everyday world that we're familiar with around us is not the reality of most of our planet. You often hear that we live on a blue planet, it's an ocean planet, but what we don't so often hear, I think, is that it's a deep ocean planet relative to our human scale. More than 60% of our world is covered by water that's more than a kilometre deep. And that's the absolute limit reached by the sun's rays as they're quenched by seawater. So the reality of our world is that it's a deep ocean world. It's a dark, deep ocean world. Uh, and I'm very pleased that my day job, if you like, uh, is to explore it and to try to understand the lives of its inhabitants. Uh, and that involves, inevitably... So many of the aspects, the definitions of wonder uh, that we heard about at the start of, of today. Uh, not least, when we're, when on the ocean floor, uh, its terrain looks so alien to us. Uh, so this is a, a rocky bit of terrain. This is the, the part of the mid-ocean ridge, our planet's geological backbone, something we had no conception really, really existed to, in its full extent until well, just 40, 50 years ago, really. Uh, it's very, very rugged. It doesn't look that much like mountain sort of ranges on land, that kind of thing. There's also the vast sedimented abyssal plains. They look so alien to us because they're shaped by completely different processes to the ones we're familiar with that, that shape the countryside around us. You know, there, there's no rain, there's no rivers, there weren't ice ages with ice sheets, you know, scouring out valleys, that kind of thing here. So, you know, that, that certainly uh, strikes us uh, when we're exploring the ocean floor. And then there's the life, which is what we're here to talk about in this session. You probably see in lots of documentaries, it is the realm of the bizarre to us. Again, things that seem alien. Lots and lots of examples. Here's one of my personal favourites. This is a new species uh, that we saw for the first time in 2010, uh, about a mile deep in a seafloor crater uh, in the Antarctic. Uh, and this is a worm. It looks very different to the worms we're familiar with. Uh, and it, it's part of a, a group of worms which, again, we had no idea they existed uh, just 15 years ago. In fact, the first one was described. We now know 20 species. This was a new species we found in 2010. The group has this wonderful name, the bone-eating zombie worms. <laughs> so why does it have that bizarre name? It has a bizarre lifestyle. This mass at the bottom that you can see here, 
That's a sort of a, a branching network of roots that this worm grows, and it lives, we found this, on the skeleton of a minke whale at the bottom of the ocean, and it makes its living thanks to bacteria that live in, uh, among those roots, digesting the actual bone to make a living. Okay, so that's how it overcomes the challenge of finding food. What about finding a mate, reproduction, the other great challenge of life? Again, completely bizarre. This is a female. The males, you struggle to see without a microscope. In comparison, they're adult-sized, they are tiny, they have little hooks, uh, and they hook onto the female, they live in the same tube, mucus sheath, uh, as, as, as this thing grows into the bone. Uh, and, yeah, very, very bizarre lifestyle. They're almost sort of parasites uh, on the female. That's the challenge of finding a mate in, in the dark depths. <laughs> so, <laughs> again, very bizarre, very strange. We think, isn't, isn't that wonderful? Uh, uh, and... And yet, when we come back, I think, from these deep ocean journeys, I hope we bring some of that with us. So now, I go out walking my dog, and I see something like this. And I'll stop, and I'll have a look at it, and think, you know, if I came across that at the bottom of the ocean, I'd think it was one of those bizarre, amazing life forms we've almost come to expect in the deep ocean. Look at this organism. Here we have something. It's nourished by the sun's rays. It grows. It then has this challenge of how does, you know, how does it propagate? How does it spread so that other, other adult forms grow elsewhere? It develops these incredible structures to be carried by the wind, to carry its propagules. If we saw that at the deep ocean, we, in the deep ocean, we would be astounded by it. We would put it up there with the bone-eating zombie worms, the anglerfish, all these other wonders of the deep. And yet, we brush past it every day. We even dismiss it as a weed. So we are often astounded in our deep ocean explorations by the scenes of life that we encounter. This one here, this is an amazing riot of life. This is 2,400 metres deep near Antarctica. Uh, and this is around hot springs on the ocean floor, which is the main focus of my study. Uh, and all of the species you see here, new to science, none of them seen before 2009 when we started exploring um, this area. And each of them has these incredible adaptations to this environment and, and those challenges of life uh, that I mentioned. Uh, and if, you, if you'd like, there are some postcards I've left in the foyer um, of this scene. You're very welcome to take away as a, as a memento uh, of it. So we're astounded by this. Here's life nourished ultimately by dissolved minerals gushing out of a hot spring on the ocean floor. Elsewhere in the deep ocean, scenes like this astound us. These are glass sponges, skeletons made of silicious material, literally like, like glass. And here they are, here, this, this meadow, nourished by this soft, perpetual rain of organic particles uh, from the sunlit world far above. Again, we're astounded by this. And yet, I go walking the dog and I see scenes like this. <laughs> and you think, isn't this equally incredible? Just look at how this is flourishing, this, this, this rain of photons on the surface of the planet. And we see these events, and this doesn't last very long. It's part of our dynamic living world. So we go into the deep ocean. We experience all these different forms of wonder, particularly at the life that's down there. And I hope we bring some of that back with us uh, into, or can do that, bring it back into the everyday. And I think that's important, because I've seen some of, I think, the best and the worst of humanity on voyages into the deep ocean. In terms of the worst, I found our rubbish, our rubbish on the ocean floor in places before our eyes have even ever got there to see it. In terms of the best, I've been on a ship, ships of hard-bitten scientists united 
in moments of wonder at what they're seeing as we're exploring these parts of our planet for the first time. Uh, you know, hard-bitten scientists, hardly a dry eye among them during those moments. Doesn't matter what else we disagree about, we share in that experience. And I think that's very important because I think if we, can, if we nourish that sense of wonder at everything around us, I think that helps to inform the choices we make in our everyday lives. That hopefully gives us hope for our future as a species. Thank you very much. Give me the pingo then. <laughs> Can I stand over there? Just yes, change of course. Yeah. So I thought I had to have some pictures too. Um, that's, uh, that's a book I'm working on. I, I'm, I think I'm partly here because the previous book I worked on, I wrote about some of your creatures, uh, yeti crabs and xenophyophores and other delightful kind of dali-esque creatures on the bottom of the ocean. But, so I'm proud of this because those five words took me six months. That's two-thirds of a word per month. Uh, <laughs> and I would have I called it um, a picture book of invisible worlds. Where that title was taken by Jakob Onuxical, the uh, Umwelt guy. Uh, and... Uh, so I want to write a book about wonder, but beyond the animal kingdom. And um, using the idea of maps, this you'll recognize as a, uh, you may recognize as a medieval Mapamundi. This one, I think, is about 1410. It's so-called Borgia Mapamundi. It's upside down. If you turn it the other way up, you might recognize we've got Europe and the British Isles are on the bottom right. Uh, and maps take many forms. This is a rather whoa, delightful one from about 100, no, 200 years later, around 1600, it's from the Polyolbion of Michael Drayton. And I like the exuberance of it. Uh, maps come in so many forms. And the way that we conceptualize and draw our maps, of course, shapes the way we then interact with the things we're attempting to map. Uh, this, by the way, was a commercial disaster. James I wasn't impressed. He clearly didn't have a sense of humor, uh, or not at least of the same kind as Michael Drayton. Um, and here's another map from... Uh, I think the 1660s, by Athanasius Kircher, um, a Jesuit, a remarkable man. It has a giant crater, as you can see at the head of the Amazon, which, of course, doesn't exist. And um, he had this extraordinary theory about circulatory passages in the deep oceans feeding through the earth, uh, which wasn't completely wrong in some sense. Um, and uh, so there we go. We've got some maps. And, of course, wonder. Uh, Keep the point here for like a 15-second summary is that what we wonder about is, among other things, historically and culturally situated. Uh, so here we have the famous engraving by uh, Albrecht Dürer from 1514, Melancholia I or Melancholia I. Uh, and among other things one could say, this was uh, engraved less than 20 years after Columbus's first voyage to um, the Indies. Um, and just a few years after um, Copernicus published the first draft of his, um, his theory uh, in a little thing called the Commentariolus, uh, which was then formalized in his, uh, his thesis of 1542. So anyway, the, the world was changing very fast. And what people were beginning to wonder about and the extent of what they thought they could wonder about in Europe was changing very dramatically. Um, and it had impacts on, on, in all kinds of ways, including on the Koweshka people. Ultimately, a, um, this is an indigenous people of Patagonia, uh, who, of course, we can see here in uh, right at the bottom of Kirsha's picture. 
Um, this is a, um, a spirit, and I won't pronounce it correctly, but I think it's something like Yinchi Hawa, um, a spirit of the Kaweshka people, um, photographed from around 1920 by Martin Gusinde. Um There are some people who still claim Kaweshka heritage were alive, but they're, they're a handful, and basically they were completely genocided. What those people wondered about their world was their umwelt was very different from from those of the Europeans who who colonized and destroyed them, and there are all these kinds of wonder which we encounter and are part of what inform our present world. So there we go. Here's a um, this is uh, uh, Centaurus A, and um, it's a galaxy. Uh, there's a supermassive black hole in the center. It's sending out because it's the hole is rotating. It's drawing in mass from the center of the galaxy, uh, from the from around itself to the center of the galaxy, and then creating a, an enormous magnetic field and shooting out uh, jets of particles more than a million light years in each direction. That's these these arms coming out. This, of course, is uh, one of the places that uh, new elements are made in the universe, and um, everything in our bodies are, you know, beneath, if you like, or in, uh, the constituents of everything alive are, are elements which um, start with hydrogen, which is 99% of the universe, but essential to life are many others. Um, phosphorus uh, is only created in um, what they call hypernovae, very, very big um, uh, star explosions. Uh, boron, which is essential to plant cell walls, I think is created by impact of gamma rays on, on larger um, elemental molecules. Um, these are, this is the kind of part of the, our imaginative universe that we, we some of us, uh, like to struggle with and, and to think about as what informs our sense of what life is. Um, and so life is made of atoms, among other things. It's also one of the things you can say about life as a gen first order generalization is that uh, it extracts order from, uh, from the world around it. You have a stream of energy which is tapped to create life. This is not alive. This is, um, these are Bachen, Bachen sand dunes on the surface of Mars in the Hellepont region. But you can see here, under the energy of wind, we have a kind of order. And this is, in a sense, what life does. Uh, these are knots. Um, and I probably don't have time to go into this, but I had something I might read later, which relates to knots. I think I'll leave that there. So I was just trying to open up our, our Thoughts about wonder a little in, in these brief comments, and perhaps we can come back to that. Thank you. <clears throat> I just wondered if someone could have a look at Casper's microphone for us. Um, if we're out there, Rob, that'd be great. When you talk about um, coming in, into the deep sea in this shared sense of wonder, so it's yourself um, and the other scientists, and you've thought about this a lot, Casper. What is that response? What's the, what's the fabric of that response of wonder? What is it? Why do you feel it? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, gosh, you, you probably experience so many different emotions <laughs> all packed together in these in very intense moments. There's a, there's a little bit of dizzying perspective. <laughs> we suddenly you know, realise what we didn't know before, uh, or that there's so much more that we don't know. It's always a demonstration of that. Uh, so you feel very small. 
but in a but in a good way, in an expanding your horizons and perspectives way. Um, so there's definitely a sense of that, uh, and then there's there's just beauty. Uh, I mean, I, I think it is. It's just astoundingly beautiful. And for a moment, that's you know that that's what we're taking in. That's that's what we're reacting to. So it's a response to the beauty, the, the vertigo almost, and a, and a sort of a humility mm. or yeah, a sort of diminishing of yeah. Yeah. one's own. Is that is that what you agree? Have you, you sure? I mean, uh, I think there's there's no one answer. Um, there are many answers, maybe as many as there are people. Why I like to think of it, I found useful when I was working on the current project was to. Um, I think, for me, I think it's true. Wonder is a state of both both heightened emotion and and heightened concentration, and, and if you like, cognitive engagement. The two come together, so you're really feeling and you're really thinking at the same time. That's one of the things I'd say. And do we think? Do we know anything about um, the his the history, if you're almost the prehistory of it? When, uh, in terms, of if we look back historically and look at things like ritualistic behavior in um, human societies, and when there were early suggestions of that that might suggest meaning being attached to things, how far back does that go? Um, well, we, uh, archaeologists and anthropologists look at surviving materials and infer all kinds of things. Of course, people often talk about um, uh, surviving artworks from the Ice Age, and uh, it's hard not to speculate, mm -hmm. and um, some people feel fairly confident that you know you can speculate that people took enormous trouble to create these works. Uh, they were clearly significant to those people, and they probably had what we would call spiritual and religious functions. So we're thinking here about things like the cave painting, Chauvet yeah. cave painting, and the like. That that far back or further back? Yeah, I mean, you know, we can then say, well, okay, let's think about the people who made these things, um, which maybe are from 30,000, 40,000 years ago, and recently there, there have been com uh, similar paintings, I think, discovered in Southeast Asia, so it's not just Europe. Um, but the people who made them had migrated uh, over generations from Africa, some tens of thousands of years previously. They, they very likely had language, they likely had stories, they probably art had artifacts which haven't survived, they probably adorn their bodies. Um, maybe they were very like us in some ways, very, very like. And if they were very like us, even if they wondered at slightly different things and they found different things beautiful, um, they, they wondered. The interesting that. thing about those paintings, and you've written about this, is, thanks, Rob. The interesting thing about those paintings, and you've written about this, is that they, the, the animal paintings contain hand, human handprints and children handprints upon them, within them. Implying, anyway, or at least we can perhaps draw. You know, I know, except this is all inference and imaginings, but a connection there that was implicit—the humility you're describing, that sense of awe, the animal life, the non-human life, and the human life—were closely connected in that representation. Is that a fair thing to say? <laughs> uh, yes, you can I disagree. Think, well, I mean, no, I don't. I, we, we can't know. I think it's very poignant. Um, perhaps this goes back to what Michael was saying, Michelle was saying with you uh, in the previous session. Um, the people are trying to make their mark. Um, I went in the summer, I was uh, down in Provence and we went sea kayaking and there's a place there where there's underground rivers come into the, into the Mediterranean and some tens of thousands of years ago the sea was quite a bit lower and divers have found, they've gone down into some of these submerged entrances and come up there's a place where they've come up into 
a cave that still retains paintings from extraordinarily long time ago, and there are handprints there, and you're seeing the remnants. People wanted to make their mark in this place that's been hidden and unknown now for tens of thousands of years, and you know that's that is extremely poignant. I think you know we we can see our own tiny mark will be lost in the same way, but possibly in some sense rediscovered, and we all want to. It's not just what we're looking at; it's our relation. You know, with the wonder is. It's us doing the wondering, right? So uh, what, it's about the relation between the human and the, and the thing they're looking at. Mm. Just, could you say something about that, John, that relation? I mean, I'm, I'm struck, so the worm. I'm, I don't want to be careful how I phrase this. So when you're 5K down and you see something like that, maybe it isn't a relationality you feel particularly, but maybe it is. It's interesting. I, 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 I think we, you know, we, we, we're increasingly divorced from the natural world uh, in our modern lives. And, you know, these days I, I do a lot of work, uh, engagement work with, with school kids. Uh, and many of them, they're used to seeing this stuff on the TV and documentaries. And in a way, it's lost some of its power of wonder. Uh, because, oh, you switch on whatever channel and there'll always be something like that on. Uh, I've even done an event where we have a little, tiny little underwater remote-controlled vehicle that they can drive, set up at Lyme Regis and Fossil Festival, send it out in the bay and they can look at things. And kids have come up and said, is that a computer game? <laughs> They're almost losing this sense of, <laughs> blurring this sense of reality and imagination and, and so on. And, and, and that might be powerful and creative, but also by losing that connection that, that obviously we've seen from these cave paintings, potentially with these handprints and so on, that, that, that's also concerning. Is that akin to the phenomenon you were describing where, because it's interesting when I, I asked you um, about that sense of vertigo when, you, when you're down there, and I remember you saying to me, in fact, the vertigo has felt coming back up and seeing a tree. That's what. Yes. Moving. But, the, but the, we miss a lot of that because of its pedestrian nature. Are you suggesting there almost then that the computer graphics, the CGI, the virtuality can make wonders more pedestrian? Perhaps. Perhaps it does. It becomes, yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting because in my field there's a very big debate about um, you know, do we need to send people into the deep ocean? We can send remotely operated vehicles now. What's wonderful about that is we can share that with modern technology. Everybody around the world can take part in that exploration, and we share this planet, uh, so we can share its exploration. So I think that's that's very powerful. Um, but then again, physically experiencing it really reinforces that sense of wonder. So it, 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 you know, there, there isn't an answer. It's still a debate in, in my area uh, on that. Um, and then there, there is this relationship between imagination and that experience of reality. One of, one of my all-time scientific heroes was a chap called William Beebe. He was the first naturalist to see deep-sea life with his own eyes. He went down in this thing called the bathysphere. It's like a, an underwater <laughs> balloon, if you like, half a mile down in the 1930s. And, and one of his best quotes, he's a fantastic writer, one of, one of his, my favourite quotes from him is that he said, at these, abys these abysmal depths, there are fish that can out-dragon any mere figment of human imagination. Uh, and that also, you, know, you, you do, you, you see these specks of light in the dark and you, you kind of play join the dots and imagine what the creature is that's making them. And then if you turn the lights on and see its actual body, it's far more <laughs> imaginative <laughs> than you were. And I mean, that's interesting, I just wondered if, Casper, you might come in on that because you taught your the book the book of barely imagined beings was was almost saying that in fact these things that we dare to imagine are present if we were to just to look at them and wonder more. Yeah, or perhaps more that as John says, um, nature's got a funkier imagination sometimes than humans have, and anything you know. We, and also, it, it's the 
our imaginations fall short of what what the world has created, and and uh, we need to we need to use our imagination at full stretch just to try and catch up with reality. I guess this goes back. Thoreau said something along these lines, and I think that's the world is more extraordinary if only we'll pay attention than than uh, many things we create. And and I think that that really to me is getting back to this heart of this experience of wonder. It's this glimpse of something greater that we are a part of, but we haven't realised we're a part of, and we haven't even realised what we don't yet understand. Um, that, that really is at the heart of it. It's, and that's both an intellectual and an emotional sort of reaction that you get to that experience. A thing that neither of you mentioned with the awe and the humility and the vertigo was fear and whether that is somehow wrapped into the sense of awe. And I, I don't... Well, maybe, maybe fear is terror, but more a kind of um, a heart-thudding um, akin to the vertigo you were describing. I mean, I don't know... Cycling down this morning, the moon was still bright. It was somewhere between the night and the day. It was a rock, and it felt beautiful, but also something about the perspective was terror-inducing. Um, is that the same as the sense of perspective and humility, or is there something about the fear that's similarly important? I think, I mean, death and pain are never far away, right? Um, oh. And when you're feeling and thinking intensely... Uh, at some level, uh, even if you're not fully conscious of it, there's emotions, uh, emotions associated with um, the witnessing or experiencing of death and pain are going to be present. And when you're looking at big things, they put small, your small things in perspective, your small life sometimes. A recognition of fragility almost. Yeah, yeah. even if it's not explicit in your, in your um, kind of verbal processing, it's going to be there somewhere. And I think wonder has that. I mean, and of course, you go back, can, can, you were asking Sam about what we can infer from the past. And if you look at some of the, um, some great works from the, uh, from before Christ, so the book of Job and, mm. and the Bhagavad Gita, they're two examples of uh, where an individual meets the deity um, in some sense. Uh, and uh, it's a terrifying experience. Um, there's all kinds of things wrapped up in that and they're quite different in their approaches and in, in terms of the two things like books I mentioned, but mm. there's terror there for sure, awe and terror. Mm. Um, yeah. And there was, in fact, mm. the, the Gita, the quotes from the Gita were invoked when the Hiroshima bomb was witnessed, wasn't Although it? It turns out Robert Oppenheimer was reading a slightly, so I read a, um, the translation is a little distorted. There's much more emphasis in the, in the Gita on, on love and joy yeah, than, than I think, uh, you can understand that he was in a pretty bad state of mind. He'd been reading John Donne and, um, you know, he, the, the translation he read was, I think, emphasised the, the, the fear and terror at the expense yeah. of the joy, to generalise. Do we think it's a particularly human um, response to the world, i.e., is this isolated to human consciousness, or is there a sense somehow that other um, non-human life, or indeed non-human persons, are capable of this emotion? Should we call it an emotion for now? Experience, response. I'm thinking about the Jane, the the the, um, the um, Jane Goodall's work with the chimpanzees, watching them watch a waterfall, and that uh, the ritualistic behaviour they inhabit. I mean, either we're anthropomorphizing it, or it's there's something in there that is um, an expression of awe. I think that's very interesting, and I, I don't know so much about chimps, but uh, you know, my daily experience is, is with a dog. Mm. Uh, and although 
chimps are much closer to us genetically. In terms of our social intelligence, dogs are actually much closer to us than chimps. They can do things uh, or understand interactions with us that chimps struggle with, like gaze signaling and a whole bunch of, of, of other things. And all I can say is, I mean, I don't know about all, but I know that a, jog, a dog can experience joy. Mm. I know that a dog can experience grief. Mm. And both Wanda has touched on both of those things as we've, we've been discussing. You know, if I take my dog into the new forest, um, yesterday he hadn't been out for ages, we went for a run. He was joyful mm. at the world around him. Mm. Yeah. Now, you know, is that so far removed from what we experience? Mm. Okay, there's maybe not the intellectual you know, rationalization of it, but, yeah, yeah. but uh, you know, so similar emotional response, perhaps, yeah. who knows? Yes. I mean, there's good evidence that some, some species, such as uh, some of the cetacean species, are extremely pro-social, just to, to come to another kind of group of species there. And maybe... Um, you know, have very subtle emotional intelligence and very, very strong feelings. And even it's hard to observe, but there's, you know, um, we can infer a lot from the behaviours that are directly observable. But we're also looking at their brains and the way the brains are connected. They're clearly extremely empathic um, animals. Um, when you come to, you know, we we tend to think of we're so inside ourselves as as uh, as humans and our and our cultures, of course, which are limiting within the sphere of what's human. Um, both for good and bad, and uh, so we can't know very much about how they, how they're thinking beyond the, beyond the, what we can see of the way they express it through emotion and and uh, behaviours, which are, you know, they're not solving problems, they're not expressing formally, um, but they might be feeling wonder. Who knows? But, I, mean, I was interested in particularly in your your book about your description of dolphin behaviour. Um, I'm not going to get to dolphin sex yet, but I will. Because it's fascinating. Um, but particularly the behaviour you were describing around um, their almost taking joy in getting the viewers to, to respond to their antics, coming back and forth and looking, you know, is that something you might be able to talk about a bit? That Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, no, I'm not a dolphin person. I haven't spent... I spent very little time with dolphins. I have I have um, swum with them, but I'm, I'm sure many people here have seen documentaries, and perhaps you've had experiences. Um, they do. They're very playful. They they uh, can read people very well. They can read human intentions. And often, I mean, when we talk about cognition, um, you know, there's multiple. There's a wonderful book by by uh, Carl Safina called Beyond Words, which I'd strongly recommend to anybody. He follows uh, orcas, wolves, and um, elephants, and the people who are trying to prevent their extinction. Um, they can read human intentions superbly and um, therefore anticipate what people are going to do often before they know themselves um, in, in various ways. And they can, they can recognize grief. Uh, and um, uh, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a, a plethora of anecdotes out there. Mm. I was interested in the fact that the, the, the dive that you talk about going down to 5K um, in fact, I, it's come to my attention that we've only really explored a tiny percentage of 3% th or something. It, it, it kind of depends what you mean by explored. Um, if you mean mapped, uh, and maps are so utterly fascinating, but we, we have a map of 100% of the ocean floor. Mm. Uh, it's 100% explored, just only to a level of detail of 5 kilometres. Mm. And we still find things with other techniques that are smaller than 5 kilometres, like that crater in the Antarctic that the, the, the zombie worm came from. Uh, if you mean seen by human eyes, mm. it's a tiny, tiny fraction of a percent. It's probably one two hundredth of one percent mm. seen by human eyes of the mm. deep ocean floor. 
and then just glimpsed once. Does that mean explored? Uh, you know, again, you know, where I, where I walk my dog, it's very different, different seasons, different species flourishing at different times of the year. Should I consider it explored after one walk in one season? Uh, so, you know, it's interesting because explored to me doesn't have an end. Mm. It begins by making a map, definitely, but it doesn't have an end on our dynamic world. And some of what you were seeing on one of those slides was actually deep sea vents, weren't they? That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So these are these are um, hot springs, a bit like the, the geysers of, of Yellowstone, but on the ocean floor. Uh, and then the species that are adapted to thrive around them, they form island-like colonies. And then it's some distance to the next set of deep sea vents. Uh, if you ever visit Iceland, you actually see you know these steam blooms from these sets of hot springs down the Rift Valley. That's exactly what it's like on the ocean floor, and it's some distance. Um, How far? At, oh, it, it can be hundreds of kilometres. It can be tens of kilometres. It depends what the geology of the Earth's crust underneath is doing. Uh, but it's too far for the adult animals that thrive around that set of vents to reach the next set of vents, and the vents don't last forever. Yeah. Tens of years in some cases, thousands of years in other cases, but ultimately each individual colony is ephemeral. And so all those species have this challenge of dispersal or ultimately die out, and obviously they've all adapted to, to meet that challenge. And they do that not by crawling as adult forms. Mm. Many of them are stuck to rocks, they can't move. But they have larval stages, they have uh, dispersal stages in their life cycles, and that's how they, they cross this void, this abyss, which to, to them is adapted, you know, reliant on the vents for energy and so on. That's how they reach the next life-giving oasis, uh, if you like. Uh, and I find that fascinating because I wonder about whether that's a sort of an analogy for life. Using... Losing it. Sorry, I'm, I'm probably. That's right. So go that. on. How does that? So you know, here we are in a planetary system. We're utterly dependent on ourselves for the, the sun for energy, and we need gravity and matter and all the things we have on this ball of rock. We're not adapted to living away from those conditions. The next planetary system that could sustain life like ours is a relatively vast distance, and it's inhospitable to us in our current form, if you like. And quite a few folk have said we, we face the challenge of disperse or die out. Stephen Hawking, I think, only this week was saying we've got a thousand years to colonise somewhere else or we're, we're doomed. Uh, how does nature do that? Nature doesn't transport the adult forms. Nature comes up with vehicles to carry the instructions to grow new adult forms elsewhere. So, so the sort of sci-fi that I quite like is things like A for Andromeda. It's, it's this idea. But I think it goes far beyond that because, to me, I think these arguments about us dispersing as a species kind of miss the point. Um, we all ultimately, at some point in our individual lives, accept our individual mortality. Uh, and we think, well, how do we, how do we live on beyond our physical lifespan? It's about the interactions, the relationships we have. It's about bridging you know, the gap to this planet of the other people that, that Michelle was talking about earlier. Uh, and we do that by communicating, by sharing ideas, experiences uh, with people. So, you know, is that not the future for us as a species? Should we not accept our, our physical mortality as a species on this ephemeral oasis that we have? We've only got a billion years, incidentally, before the sun becomes so bright that it boils away all the oceans, and that'll be it for life on Earth, as, as uh, I, I think, as at least we understand it. Uh, given that, you know, what makes us human is not, I don't think, our sequence of letters in our genetic code, it's exactly what Michelle was talking about with Ludwig's wonderful uh, performance earlier. It, 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 it's this other spirit that enters us. And I think we could reflect on what it means to be human. What is humanity? What are the experiences, the things we've learned? What is the culture 
we would like to share with life elsewhere in the cosmos? Is that not how we should think about persisting? And if we do that and accept our mortality as a species, then I think we focus on the relationships we have on this planet. Brilliant. So saying that, unavoidably then, saying that, seeing deep sea vents argued as or touted as the origin of life, or at least the alkaline vents Nick Lane was talking to us about last year, if not the black smokers you, you've shown, seeing those and knowing at the same time, concurrently, what we're doing to the oceans, the litter you see, um, the expansion due to warming, etc. What does, at a personal level, what does that do to you, seeing that and knowing what you know? I swing between utter despair at mm. times mm. And, and yet some optimism. And, and where, where does the optimism come from? It comes from a recognition that it's, it's not yet too late for us to choose the kind of future we want. Mm -hmm. um, but how are we going to, you know, I, I think a lot of the problems we've had is because we haven't made choices. We have just done things. We haven't chosen that future. We haven't chosen that path. We've allowed things to happen. The more we know about our world and what's going on there, uh, it, it, you know, it, it can just be sharing that means that hopefully we can think about the choices we're all making. And it's choices all the time in everyday lives. You know, it's, it's, it's single-use plastics. It's, you know, replacing a mobile phone every couple of years. Where are the metals for that going to come from? Where are they going to be mined from? Places like the deep sea vents I study in the future, quite possibly. It's all these individual choices. Uh, so it, it's recognizing those connections and so on. And, and then, you know, if, if we all, if we can share that, and, and you know, everyone knows this, it, 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 education is the future, mm. then people can choose the future rather than just let it happen to them. So adequately, adequately wondering about it without wishing to make that into too trite a link compels us or have, contains the possibility of compelling us to acting differently. Casper, you've talked about this. I've got a quote here um, from your book about us being only fully human when we act as if the life beyond us matters. That was you, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm sure somebody else has said it better, but yeah, that's in the book somewhere. It seems like a pretty good way of yeah. saying it. So in, in, as a realisation of human responsibility, in a sense what you're saying there, our version of colonising the universe isn't necessarily about arriving in red suits so much as you know, an integrity to disseminating knowledge and values. How do, how, in part I accept what you both say about scientific knowledge fueling that yet yet the last 200 years of um you know post-enlightenment flourishing of knowledge it's not as if we've arrived at this entirely ignorantly uh, the notion that we go well we really didn't know you know we we do there is knowledge attached and in fact um an expansion of knowledge you know all of all of all of colonialism the empire empirism all of that has produced a world that we're struggling to reconcile with something that seems morally reasonable. So what wandering doesn't seem to have the force that we might want it to, or sufficiently. Well, you know, maybe maybe the human condition is pretty tragic, you know, in terms of our cultures. So I think you're right. I mean, you know, in a sense, sustainability is just a design challenge. Yeah? You know, we can clearly, clearly a technocrat, a scientist, can come up with a pretty good draft for how we make a sustainable planet for 9 billion people, and, you know, we'll be talking about that later. 
there's a lot clearly it's a soluble problem you know we can see the rate of growth of renewable energy and the rest but in terms of uh, the tragedy um i mean every technology you know to be to put it a little tritely every technology is a two-edged sword isn't it and and um we current maybe um compared to the mid mid 20th century things maybe don't seem quite so scary uh, because we don't feel we're on the verge of blowing ourselves up perhaps perhaps rightly perhaps wrongly um and uh, the new technologies that are coming in line. You were talking, John, about the kids who, um, who want to play games. Um, those are fantastically expand mind-expanding, but also very dangerous. I, was, I didn't have time to read, but there's a, um, a former American military general who's, who's made, looked at some of the computer games that kids are playing now. And they, they're very good at training people to kill, but they have none of the discipline that they get in the army. Um, you know, and so he's arguing you know, it's sensational perhaps, I haven't read the thesis, that this is actually, you know, training a new generation of killers. We have to recognize that's part of what technology does too, or has the potential to do, um, and that challenges with it. But then the, the challenges, you know, in, the, in terms of tragedy, think about tragedy, what comes after tragedy? If the world doesn't end, then something comes after, you know, maybe you get to Shakespeare's late plays or whatever, and you get to the idea of healing. Uh, we could talk about Leonard Cohen, you know, come healing, and... Um, even though it's probably going to be smashed up again, you know, but then it keeps going. It's not, the world doesn't end until the world ends. It's very interesting to use the word healing, because earlier on when we had that description of the etymology and various versions of the word wonder, you at one point talk about the possibility of the word wound being linked to wonder, very loosely. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's much... I mean, as far as I know, because I've, I try quite hard, I haven't got beyond the OED defin definition and the etymology, which is we don't know what <laughs> the etymology is. Um, but people, I mean, so Thoreau, to admit, he, he'd spec, because it made sense to him, he connected it to wandering with a A, I kind of, you know, just mooching about. And a philosopher I read, um, who uh, is one of those Heidegger people, um, connected it to wound. But again, there's no, you know, it, it's, they sound similar, but there may be no etymological link. But yes, I mean, in terms of cognitively, uh, when you're wounded, you know, maybe you're more vulnerable and maybe you're more thoughtful and in the process of healing. Healing itself can be, you know, think of the um, Beethoven's uh, late string quartets, the healing in those, you know, after illness um, can be wonderful. Well, both, in fact, the both themes of um, technology and its two sides will be picked up later on, certainly with Gaia and um, the therapeutic power of music with James Rhodes. So those, those will definitely come up. I might wonder if we take some questions. Is that all right? Mm -hmm.